Hey everybody, so before we jump into today's podcast, I just wanted to A, thank you guys, give you a little bit of a reminder. If you enjoy this content, however you're watching it, consuming it, please like, follow, subscribe, whatever you gotta do, comment on it. If you can, leave us a review. It really helps us out and it can help grow our platform and reach more people. And if you know someone that can benefit from this, please share it with them. If you have a question, if you wanna reach out to us, let us know. And then lastly, we have all of our amazing programs, courses, and coaching available in the resources below. So check that out. Definitely take advantage of it. We have everything from free options all the way up to paid programs and everything in between to fit pretty much anyone's budget. And it's just a matter of how customized it's going to be based on the price point. So there's really something for everybody. Thank you guys. Let's get on into the episode. Yeah, fighters. What's going on, everybody? It's Mike here. Got episode number 103 coming up, and we're finally finishing up our brain myths and misconceptions with part four, covering chapters 21 to 24. Um, And right off the bat, 21 is looking at the idea of adults being able to make changes in their brain as they age. And this one's obviously interesting because the the research and information is showing that you can. And obviously as an adult myself, and I'm sure many of you listening, if not all of you, are adults. Um, and even still, for anyone that's younger, the idea that you want to start taking care of your brain and looking at strategies to prolong its not only activity, but not only its health too, but also looking at how can you just optimize it. Um, and I wish I would have been even more intrigued by this and had this information and the ability with technology to access more of it um, at a younger age, but no better present than now. Um, so yeah, we're diving right into it. We got neurogenesis. And the big thing we're looking at here is, as the name says, uh, neuron or brain cell growth or birth, uh, however you want to look at it. And the first topic we're going to look at is neuroplasticity. So not just being able to grow new cells, new neurons, and new connections, but how to also change pathways. So let's say a part of your brain's either um, have injury at some sort, just sustained an acute injury, or it's just been a a genetic issue, or some kind of developmental issue, and a part of your brain's not firing properly, working, whatever, communicating, however you want to look at it, whatever the issue is. You can have uh, pathways rerouted in your brain to make up for that and have most function not be affected, depending on the area of your brain that is originally affected in the first place. Which is really cool, and that leads us to be able to know, or lead to believe, and then with further research, find out and know that the brain can change. And not only can it change and adapt with the current amount of activity and cells it has, but it also has the capability to grow new neurons and new synapses with one a key ingredient or a key factor is brain-derived neurotropic factor, better known as, more commonly known as, BDNF. And obviously, I myself am more intrigued by the exercise part of it and the effect that exercise will have on BDNF, um, just from my own personal background. But in general, many things can release an increase in BDNF, and that was a really intriguing part to this chapter as they cover what's going to increase it, what's going to have an important impact, how much can it go up, and um, also this allows – because priorly we once thought – 
that once you get older and you reach your uh, late 20s and then going into your 30s, your brain activity is actually going to no longer grow new cells and you're just going to have to work off what you currently have. And maybe you can create new pathways, yes, but you're not actually going to be able to grow uh, new neurons themselves. So the myth after your brain develops fully in your early adulthood, it just starts a long, slow decline and it just continuously goes down. Truth of the matter is your brain continues to be changeable throughout your lifespan. So again, when we look back at being able to grow new cells, being able to make change, not only just grow new cells, but be able to change with what you currently have, and then being able to control it now when we understand exercise and different types of um, exercise movements and the impact it'll have on different areas of our brain. Uh, So for example, if we look at juggling will increase activity in the hippocampus, while we also look at music or music-related activities, and it'll not only increase activity in the hippocampus, but it'll also affect the related areas of the brain, like the auditory cortex. So not just listening to music, but whatever the activity is, we're going to get an increase in the hippocampus, more than likely, at least from the ones that we are listing here and that what we've seen, but also the related area of the brain with that specific activity, because juggling is going to obviously be different, use a different sensory input system than with music. So more or less, I mean, obviously we're going to use our hands for playing the instrument, which will use certain key parts of the brain, but also we're going to have different areas related like hearing versus uh, movement or speaking or different activities like that, or even just more of a muscular activation and solely that's it. Um, and that's what's really interesting when we look at all those different activities and not just the overall BDNF increase, which studies are showing that they can be up to three times or three folds the amount. So an increase in 300%, that's significant. And if we can optimize that and take advantage of that, for example, what I'm doing right now, recording this podcast, I'm mixing up workout sets where I'm going to be working out for three to six minutes and then get a one to five minute break where I'm going to record actual bits of this. I'm not recording all this at once. I'm doing little chunks like three to five minutes and seeing how overall it gets put together, increase in energy, flow, all that good stuff. And so far, it seems interesting enough. So anyways, diving back into it. So chapter 21 overall is just looking at how the brain can change as we age and it's not as limiting as we once thought, but there are certain limitations. Certain parts of our brain and certain neurons aren't going to grow. A lot of the growing is going to be related to specific neurons and specific parts of the brain, but the fact that we can still grow new neurons and have that new synaptic firing and relationships going on, it's awesome. But specifically, we're looking at long-term memory-related areas of the brain and increase in performance. So that's what I find interesting about this for studying purposes, especially as a student or anyone that wants to just take in information or be able to absorb things, or even for athletes and people that are going to be active and need to be at an optimal level and retain information, utilize this and then get an increased BDNF, absorb that information, and repeat the cycle. Again, if you have the option to do that, certain situations may not allow for that, but if you can put yourself in a situation, you can plan accordingly to put yourself in that situation. Again, whether it's budgeting time, location, um, whatever's related to it, whatever you got to do, make it happen. Um, and if you can, great, utilize that. Especially, again, when I was talking about before, the younger 
you can do this, the better. And this is something I wish I would have told or I was told when I was a teenager to optimize even more what was going on in my brain and utilize even learning new skills, languages, all that fun stuff. Anyways, that's going to be it for 21. Now we're going to dive into chapter number 22. Chapter 22. So for chapter 22, we're diving into the myth, hanging out with other people, socializing at the expense of working basically is what we're looking at in this analogy, is not as good for your brain as reading a book or doing other intellectual tasks are. And the truth of the matter is our brain size exploded when we started living in groups and the worst thing you can do to a baby is deprive him or her of social stimulation or even just physical touch. A baby will literally die without a certain amount of interaction and touch when it's first born. So that's something that's really important. But the only thing I have to point out here that I find a little contradictory by the authors is prior in another chapter they were talking about brain size and correlation to intelligence and activity was kind of a myth in and of itself that they proposed the truth to that there's not a direct correlation between brain size and intelligence. However, in this truth, they're using brain size as evidence or as a supporting argument to the idea that's fighting against the myth. So not to take away from the actual point, I was just wanted to point out, in my opinion, the little uh, contradiction there. And again, I think it's if it's on purpose, then saying, okay, you're, you're showcasing that you can state something, but then also there's another situation that can apply. I'm all for that. But if it's going with it as an error, then hey, just pay attention. That's it. Anyways, so again, the myth is when we look at it, is socializing worse than actually spending your time doing intellectual activities? And with what chapter 22 is spending most of the time looking at is supporting the argument that social interaction is just as important in development as much as the other activities that we're going to do. And there's a bunch of different ways that's being broken down, whether we're looking at um, the special neuron production and or association with a social life and what aspects of having a social life stimulates different parts of your brain. And then they'll go into Dunbar and Dunbar's number. And that's a really fun one. I would definitely review that for yourself, guys. Take the time to read through that specific part. Then we also look at mirror neurons and then also some examples that look at just the importance of social interaction. Like, for example, if you're in prison, the worst punishment you can get is solitary confinement. And think about that. So if you're already in a prison, which is a horrible sentence in and of itself, the worst thing that they could do to you is not put you around all these other dangerous people, but actually leave you to yourself. And again, the brain can kind of deteriorate from there. So... I think that's probably the important part for me. Takeaway on this chapter is social interaction is key. And sometimes we'll think, well, I should sacrifice hanging out with friends or interacting with people to work on something or develop something. But when really sometimes your brain need actually, your brain may actually need that social interaction to continuously remain healthy, productive, and optimally running. So just a little food for thought on that one. That is chapter 22 in a nutshell. Let's jump on to 23. Chapter 23 is a very interesting topic because it's talking about prejudice and the myth is that we are not prejudiced. 
And that's a really interesting myth. And the truth of the response to that uh, is also interesting. Our brains have evolved to make many shortcuts. And one of the negative consequences of this is the fact that we tend to make inferences about people who are not like us automatically and unconsciously. So, for example, let's say you're Italian, you're American, you're a particular nation or nationality, and someone is something else. More than likely, just from right automatic response and an unconscious level, you're going to be predisposed to be less drawn to them than someone from a similar country or your country, or be a countryman. Okay, so that's one example. And then we can apply that to obviously many different topics of gender, of race, of a political standpoint, of anything you could think about. You could apply that and say, okay, what am I? I'm going to naturally, on, on, on auto, some extent, automatic, at an automatic level or an unconscious level, be drawn towards something similar to myself. And one analogy that I like, or a metaphor or example that they provide towards the end of the chapter is... The thought that what would you expect from a, if it was a loved one standpoint? So if you love someone, wouldn't you want something similar or things to remind you of them or to be close to that? Sure. Now imagine yourself as your probably most important loved one because without yourself, existence is not happening, right? So you would want to have things that remind you of yourself or that can keep similar to yourself just from an evolutionary standpoint and from that perspective. And then we, we kind of talk about different topics of when wouldn't it make sense um, to actually want to be a part of a group? When would it say it makes sense to actually be a part of it and things like that? And it's just overall an interesting topic of where it seems like we're actually going to have certain prejudices naturally built in. Certain things are learned and acquired over time, but it's just a part of the evolution. So we have to, I think, acknowledge that before we start to kind of overcome obstacles that will come from that particular topic. And that's the biggest takeaway I really got from Chapter 23 and that I think you guys could really um, appreciate as well. So that is going to be it for 23. Let's dive into number 24. And for Chapter number 24, the topic is going to be technology and the idea of, is technology making us stupid? Or what real role is technology having or influencing on our intelligence? And the myth that we're going to look at in this chapter is, technology will make us stupid. The truth of the matter that is being explained is spending time doing anything will rewire the brain, but the uses of technology will vary widely, and that some of those... Um, variations of technology are actually making us smarter. So there may be a hindrance on certain parts of it, but overall, the influence and impact can make us smarter and not stupider. So let's look into that, or let's dive into that, because there's going to be pros and cons, obviously, to technology, and technology is a very wide scope and a very broad term that we're using, obviously. So whether we're looking at technology on just the internet alone, that's one aspect that we can explore. And that's um, a study that's being brought up throughout the chapter is in 1998, a study looks at 78 homes having the internet being introduced for the first time and what impact that has. In those 78 homes, the initial findings were that the use of the internet kind of 
broke down the family a bit, separated them, actually reduced communication and reduced um, activities being together. However, which which obviously broke news, made a big deal, and we, as we've discussed in chapters prior, um, the media can tend to take things out of context and apply it on a larger scale when that's not really what the data specifically is saying. In this case, it actually was saying that, but there was a follow-up study done four years later in 2002, and even on a larger scale, now, what you have to keep in mind is when N is 78 and N is, is the sampling size of the study, 78 really isn't that large of a sampling. Um, so 78 families, that's a small, small fraction of society. And even on the second one, the follow-up one they saw in 2002, they did uh, 400 uh, families. And again, that's still a small, small sample of society. But they saw when they scaled it up slightly, excuse me, and they even followed up on the original families from 1998 that once they got that in, past that initial stage and in introduction of the internet, all those negative effects actually started to dissipate. And then they started seeing actual increase in communication, in well-being, in social interaction. So it seemed like it brought them together as technology stayed in their lives. So that's just one example um, that they do bring up in this chapter that technology may not have the negative influence we once thought. And when it comes to social interaction, which is a, a form of intelligence, and, and what we look at from the last chapter of that intellectual activities versus social interaction um, shouldn't be just mutually exclusive, that social interaction is a key part to our intelligence in a healthy brain. Therefore, the, the technology aspect of the internet or the internet being part of technology and that being associated with our intelligence and having the influence on we are socializing better with technology because we can reach more people and then these activities tend to bring us together and this is going to be a, a debated topic of even video games, for example. So let's say you're playing video games, it's bringing um, a family, let's say brothers together to actually be able to play them. Now, you can also argue that you could go outside and simply play in the grass, and that could also bring a family together. Yes, both arguments are actually true. Now, one doesn't necessarily have to argue against the other. It's just a different means. So just to isolate technology for a second, saying not to say that technology is, as it evolves, going to become better and better than another option. It's just to say that is technology overall making us stupid? That's the myth we're looking to bust here, and that's the support that they're giving, whether it's also now looking at not just interaction, social interaction, but also when we look at um, focus and the impact on our brain and memorization even. They bring up examples of how we can actually build skills of being able to focus and apply our um, attention span because obviously we all think of, well, technology is ruining our attention spans. The, kill, the kids of the children, the next generation, they're screwed because they're just going to have their eyes locked in on tablets and things like that, smartphones, and they're not going to actually have the ability to just focus on their surroundings around them and so on and so forth. Or even memorizing cell phones, the ability to memorize things when you're not going to need to because you can just simply look into your smart device, have a whole bunch of different information stored. But on the flip side of that and the reverse side, Think about now the ability to access that much more information and to be able to scale it on a larger level. That's, I think, the more interesting point that's being made and that we could look at is not just, okay, what can I remember off the top of my head, but how much information can I expose myself to and what can I ultimately gather from that?
So for technology and intelligence, they bring up a study from 2010 that showed that people who use computers more also tend to show better performance on certain cognitive tests. So this is kind of, again, a little bit of a correlation, not necessarily causation, because just because they're uh, using the internet or they're using computers doesn't necessarily mean they are more intelligent. It's just showing that they are having better scores, which, of course, yes, that's going to be one form to prove intelligence. But I think it more supports the idea that it's not just necessarily cognitive performance, but the ability to access more information and have a little bit more reach of that information is greater and easier. For example, instead of having to just go to a library, look up a book, check the book out, go home, read the book, which the process of actually getting the information can be longer than right now if you just go on the internet and find the information. You could absorb that information the same amount of time it could actually take you to go to the bookstore or to go to a library and get that piece of information, if you can even find it. So the access to information, I think, is what's also making it so much easier in this century and with technology and as it grows and evolves. Now, obviously, there's downsides to it, and we can't ignore that, um, but there's also a, a, just a physiological and a neuroscience aspect to it of different neurochemicals and transmitters and different synapses firing in our brain reacting and responding to technology, to internet, to tablets, smartphones, even when we're getting dopamine hits with uh, social media responses. there are I'm not going to say there's not some good and bad and that these lists don't continue on and we can continue to stack them. I'm just saying that technology by itself, I hear what they're trying to say in this chapter and I, I tend to agree with them, is technology by itself isn't going to make us dumber. We, it's a tool that we can leverage and use to either educate ourselves more or we can use it as a crutch to potentially hinder ourselves, but ultimately it falls on our shoulders. Just from using technology by itself isn't going to actually um, negatively impact the brain as we really, I think, have the general thought that it can. So that's, I, I think, one of the biggest takeaways, not just from this chapter, but from the entire book. They finish it up really strong, and I really like the last topic they leave it on because, obviously, I'm even speaking to you right now with a form of technology, podcast, internet, the ability for me to have this platform and reach the thousands of peoples that we – the thousands of people, not peoples, excuse my uh, grammatical slip there, everybody. The people that I'm able to reach, all of you guys, is because of technology. 15, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have this platform. I could probably blog, um, and I was only blogging as early as, let's say, eight, nine years ago. But 20 years ago, you're not podcasting. You can't compete with the radio shows out there, and even with TV, look at what's, ha what's happened with that. We're seeing this drastic shift going from typical cable uh, and TV subscriptions to independent providers. And when I say independent providers, not that YouTube's not a huge conglomerate or all these things. They're, there's not your typical platforms. And that's been an evolution of technology. Now, again, going back to the intelligence part of it, that's not even directly showing intelligence or negatively or positively impacting it. It's just showing where it's going and the possibilities can be endless. So I think we should embrace it, but also still be weary and, and see how much we rely on it because there is always that potential downside where what happens when we're so reliant and we don't have libraries anymore and all of our information's online and then there is a power outage or there is a problem and there's no backup server or whatever the issue may be, 
we still want to be able to have access to information and be able to educate ourselves and be able to communicate and not have to rely solely on technology. So by able, be being able to maintain our independence, I think, is the biggest key to leveraging technology in our favor. And boom, that's what I'm going to leave you guys with for 24. For the end of part four of this Brain Myths and Misconceptions Fighter's Guide, all the podcast episodes and yeah guys uh that's gonna do it we'll see you guys next week for the life of a fighter podcast peace so i just wanted to say thank you guys again for watching listening consuming that episode if you guys enjoyed it and you haven't already please like uh please comment if you haven't reviewed please leave a review if you haven't followed or subscribed please do that as well again it tremendously helps us out and then just a quick reminder if you guys want more resources we have them below we have our programs everything from free all the way up to paid and kind of everything in between dial in with the customization and we have more information on different programs and resources in our newsletter so if you haven't signed up for that do so below it's free and that is it y'all see you on the next one